Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Uh, last summer, uh, when I was spending a lot of time, too much time perhaps, at uh, West Coast festivals, um, I had the opportunity to uh, see a unusual koali group uh, a few times. The uh, name of the group is Fana Fi Allah. And uh, I had seen Koali before and enjoyed a, a fair amount on recording. Um, back in the day, as they say, to see uh, the great uh, Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan in uh, New York a couple times uh, when I was a music critic. And there was a, a brief period when he was a, a little bit of a hit superstar. In, uh, in, in a, from a Western secular music perspective, there were records produced by, uh, by Peter Gabriel's uh, label that uh, actually fashioned a hit, um, Must Must. And uh, it was a great experience because uh, uh, Kuali is this one of those wonderful uh, streams of, of world music, of, you know, of human music that uh, combines tremendous... Uh, sacred intensity and spiritual focus with uh, such exuberance that even the, you know, the secular fools and cynical rock critics in the audience uh, love it. Um, the more I've gotten into sacred music in the last, you know, 20 years of my life, which is a lot of what I listen to in, in the widest possible senses, uh, you know, Kuali remains one of the most um, uh, sort of powerful and transformative ones, although I don't know as much about it as I would like. So I was very happy to see Fana Fiala, who's made up mostly of uh, North Americans, of, of white folk. Uh, and I was very impressed with their performance and also with a, a teaching lesson that was given by uh, their um, the head fellow, Tahir Faradi Kawal. Uh, and he was speaking a little bit about learning rags and uh, singing and and it was a it was a actually a lesson it was one of the better parts of this one festival went to beloved where people would actually um, not just perform uh, but give a, a lesson so people in the audience who are interested in singing and interested in spiritual music could learn a great deal and it was a wonderful experience so uh, I, uh, I I thought to hear lived in, in Nevada City for a while they lived around guess because I first heard about them from from hippie friends in uh, in the Sierras, uh, but uh, I finally reached him in Australia on the on the lip of uh, of a summer tour, and so he's he's up late. And to hear, thanks so much for uh, for sticking with me uh, temporarily here. Welcome to Expanding Mind. Thanks, glad to be here. Cool. Well, I think uh, you know uh, an, an an easy and obvious place to start out is your own story uh when you you know when you were young you first heard this music i mean uh fauna fila has been going on for uh like 17 years now so it's a good chunk of time um how how the heck did you get on this path oh well talking about myself uh, <laughs> it's the classic question now i get it, it all is. the time especially, i mean in a way uh, especially you know in, even in india and pakistan everybody's quick to to ask what the history of how somebody in from such a distant reality culturally and religiously and spiritually and just demographically could get so deep into something that it, it also you know follows the history of the music and the way it's traveled and the history of the music itself and how it's evolved but um yeah it it really um drew me in in a deep way and beyond the um the inherent beauty of the music there's just something extremely fulfilling about the practice of this music that that keeps me and my group deeply um knotted together in the practice and the love of it and um so you know as a young explorer of, of spiritual culture and direction in life in my early teens I was really attracted to the the music of India the classical music and and that came a lot from the god rock kind of groups like quintessence and the Beatles and the incredible string band you know I was like 
14 and 15. And I was always so fascinated with the, those instruments, like the sounds of the sarangi and the sitar and the tabla and tampura inside of those recordings. So, you know, follow those to find Ravi Shankar and Ustad. Ali Akbar Khan and Nikhil Banerjee and all those great masters of classical music. And the more that I heard that music, the more that I just fell in love with it. And it's something, you know, beyond words, you can try to explain what is the attracting factor and why, but there's just, there was a chord touch really deep inside. So began studying the classical music. And at that time, I was also studying the language of, of Hindi and Sanskrit and Persian. And something about when I stumbled upon Kowali, actually listening to a, a CD of Ustad Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan, or back then it was probably tapes or eight tracks or something, <laughs> The Last <laughs> Prophet, that album. And I was, yeah, the, 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 the melodies were so, um, were so catchy. And after listening to the album once, like the melodies just kept going around and around in my head. And I was recognizing the raga like the, the whole musical design and a lot of those techniques that I had learned through the, my classical studies. And I just felt like um, studying the music and from, you know, it's a long story, but to keep it short, basically, finally um, went to a koali ceremony for the first time when I was, I think, 19 in Varanasi. I'd been listening to Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan and the Sabri brothers and a lot of the heavy hitters that were available in recordings. And I heard this koali ceremony in, in India and I was like, wow, this is, this is really bad. This isn't the koali that I, I'm used to hearing. I want to track down these masters and the style. So I went back to my room in the middle of the night and figured out as much as I could of Allahu, you know, writing all the verses out from an old cassette with the headphones on and figuring out on my mandolin at the time and singing the verses. And um, yeah, one thing led to another, and the um, the group was formed back in uh, 2000. And the idea behind that was an experiment to bring together, you know, seven of of my close friends who were deeply also interested in Indian classical music and devotional music, and had, I guess, a colorful past in the same way of spiritual searching, especially in the East. And we. The idea was to spend uh, three hours, um, three times a week for three months and learn four koali songs. So we, we would sit together and had all the, the lyrics transcribed for everyone and we'd gone over it and gone over it and really enjoyed the fraternity of sitting together and learning music as a group like that because it's unique, you know, while classical music or other music can be like, you know, two people or three people. Kowali involved a whole group learning experience and singing together and it culminated with a performance that I had arranged and it was very well attended the performance about 300 people and, and people just loved it and we just loved it so from that point it just grew and grew and grew. Tell me about some of your your teach whether whether your your earliest teachers or the ones where it became a more traditional kind of teaching relationship because of course teaching the classical these classical forms is not just about teaching the music it's a whole introduction to a, to a life it's often carried through these traditional families so i'd love to hear about some of the most important you know teachers and what they were like and and how your relationship you know evolved yeah i just had a similar interview with BBC a couple of days ago about this because that was from like a Pakistani Asian network where the way they saw this it it's very difficult to get into the whole um, teacher-disciple relationship in Pakistan because the music like you say flows within the lineages of the families in a very strong way with a lot of integrity over many many generations so someone can't just like go to Pakistan or India and pop in a few hundred rupees and learn a kawali. It's, it's very, um, it's very hidden and it's such a sophisticated art that it takes so many years that it's very few people that learn it at a certain level and from such great masters that I've been blessed to learn from. And 
so there was several steps in it when I was, you know, I was 16, I had a Sanskrit teacher. So I was learning a lot about the culture and um, the language at that point. And then I had a, a tabla master from Punjab who taught me in my native town of Nova Scotia, Canada, where I'm from. And he also tuned me into a lot of the Punjabi elements of the music. He's from Punjab and the stories of the Sufi masters. So one thing led to another. Then studying in India and finding a master there until um, I went to Pakistan with Amina for the first time and had already learned a bunch of Kowalis as best as we could from recordings and studying the music through the classical music of India, which is the same technical background and basis. And um, heard really good Kowali for the first time at the shrine of Baba Farid Shakarganshu one of the great Sufi masters, and at his shrine in a village called Bakhbatan, inside of Punjab, Pakistan, um, in that traditional setting of Kowali, where at the shrine, Kowals just play all day and all night. So there'll be, for about an hour or so, a different Kowal group that will sit down that has a lineage of hundreds of years behind them, sitting at that shrine in the same way. And the music was so profound for that reason, just how deeply connected the music was to the place and how long people have been learning it and how it's evolved in that traditional and devotional setting. And uh, it was when we went to the Urs of Data Ganjibaksh in Lahore about a month later that we see all the heavy hitter koals that we've been listening to on, on recordings for so long because that, that's one of the big Urs, like the um, the wedding uh, it's like a marriage ceremony of a Sufi master, which is his like samadhi, his fana. It's a commemoration of his final union with God, with the beloved. And so there's several solid days, like three, four days of solid kawali, and all the biggest kawali masters come to play at that. And we we seen our, our you know the people we had listened to with such reverence for several years on recordings and seen it live. It was so powerful. And, um, I remember asking somebody, oh, um, where, do, where, do, where can I meet one of these koals? I was, you know, really nervous and excited. And like, oh, just at the pilot hotel, you know, just around the block, you can go there. And, and I think most of the koals stay there while they're in town. Like, oh, really? So went to this, this hotel and and at the reception, there was all like the room numbers and all the koals had their business cards like connected to each of the room numbers. <laughs> like, no way. <laughs> so straight went straight went to like, okay, Ustad Rahat Fatih Ali Khan, you know, who's the successor of Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan, as you know, in room such and such. So we just went up, knocked on the door and he's like, oh, hi, Islam alaikum. I'm like, Malikum Islam, come on in for some chai. Let's hang out. Like, what are you guys up to? Not, you know, not, not, you don't see white people in that setting. I'm like, oh, you know, I've been studying Kowali music and I'm very passionate about that. But I wanted to come back to the, the root of this music to really study it and find a master and blah, 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 blah. And before taking this music any further, I really want to have some proper guidance. And he's like, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah sing something. So I, I sung some licks and... And he's like, oh, sounding really good. Why don't you just um, come over to my place after the oars and, and just, you know, live uh, live with me for a little bit and I'll show you around the ropes. So you know, I went, we went We went to, to the home of Ustad Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan where he used to live when he was alive. And uh, and they gave us the room where his, where his brother lived when he was alive and, and we stayed there for a good month and just learned the music every day, every day, every day. And when there was a koali ceremony, which was most nights, we go with Rahat and his group members and uh, and sit with them on stage while they played, and so on and so forth. And in this way, uh, most of the great koali masters ha have had us in their homes for a period of weeks or months or even years, and just taught us and taught us and taught us. And we've just been there, you know, at their feet with reverence and a lot of love for the music and they see that and they appreciate that and they honor that very deeply so there's <laughs> the, the you know that was the only bridge to cross there was that distance and that 
love for the music that that brought us to these masters and they've taught us well and they continue to teach us in that way yeah it's a wonderful story i mean because it it, it makes you realize that uh you know, from uh, from one perspective, it's incredibly novel and unusual what you did, uh, you and Amina, and, and just the, the whole the whole story. But on another level, you're like, well, yeah, but these things they spread. You know, they they move, they change. You know, if you look at the whole history of Kuali or the history of of Indian classical music, it's not like you know it started out and everybody was just doing it. It's like it spreads and it spreads into different cultures, and maybe it's not across you know, a huge ocean with, with people from a different ethnic stock for the most part, but it, but it is that too, you know, gypsy music evolves from Rajasthan and, you know, there's music is much more fluid than we sometimes think it is when we associate it simply with a particular nation or a particular ethnicity even. And so on another level, it's just about the universality of, of music and the way in which it can bring people into devotion and into a sacred, uh, you know, exuberance, um, that's, that's, you know, that is kind of universal and that isn't, it isn't, does fauna, fauna means a uh, union, right? Yeah. In, in the name of your, it your... means, yeah, the, the, the direct translation is closer to annihilation, but it's in that sense of like the ultimate destination spiritually when that concept of separate self is annihilated in that love, that ishk that divine love with the, with the beloved, with God, with the ultimate. Well, I wanted to ask you, one thing is that you had mentioned that this adventure had happened with, uh, with uh, Amina uh, Kisti, I think I'm pronouncing it. Um, and and she's a she. Yeah, and, and she's a she, which adds a, another wrinkle into the tale. Um, I think you mentioned in one of the interviews I read that, that, you know, one of the, the traditional places to perform in, in, in Pakistan and in India is of course at, at shrines. So you're in a, you're in a, uh, you know, sacred ar- architectural space where people were, that's, that's set off from the, from the secular world. Um, what was it, what's it like being, what's her experience or what, what are some of the, the, the resistances and acceptances around her just because it is a traditionally male form so that must be an additional it's like here come the whiteies oh yeah and one of them's got long hair no i mean not long hair like your long hair but you know one of them's female (laughs) yeah it's been an interesting journey that one you know essentially those you know that have read the poetry of the sufis or have transliterated or learn the meanings of the koalis that are sung. It's very rebellious music um, to different extents. But for the most part, the Sufis are very um, colorful and diverse people and not afraid of, of breaking boundaries. And just like in the creativity of the music, there's a deep respect for, um, for transcending layers or transcending veils. And traditionally, women in, say, Pakistan or Sufi culture in the Indian subcontinent, they also sing the same poetry and they have the same genre of music. It's not exactly Kawali because Kawali is suited for males in the way that, you know, the key of the music is in the arrangement. And what's unique is that the, the tabla of Kawali, the, the rhythm, uh, instrument is very different from like a classical one. It's very, uh, it's very heavy. The style of playing, it's more folky in a way. And the and the drums themselves are, are, are different, even though they're tablas. The bass drum is actually quite a large wooden hollow drum that like a, a wet um, japati is pasted onto every time you play to give that super heavy bass sound that's modulated that thumps so hard in the koali. So the tabla roll is is often seen as like the most grueling and rigorous and powerful role and then and that's what I'm gonna play. So that's especially interesting. Also it's not just that she's singing some some kawali, she's playing the role and often the tabla players are like really big and really fat Punjabis and chewing pawn the whole time and just pounding away on these drums. <laughs> and uh yeah, she just she just loved the music just like just like I did and, and wanted to learn the music and she also started from a classical bass of learning the classical tabla and then tholak and then you know took on the kawali tablas properly and 
people are really astounded by this. And and when we studied with Ustad Rahat Fateh Khan for the first time in, in Faisalabad in Pakistan, uh, Nusrat Fateh Khan's tabla player was there playing with Rahat and was actually living in his home often because they were playing so many shows that there was just not time to, to go home to Lahore. So he was there and teaching her while I was learning with Rahat, like the vocal styles and we were just rocking out and playing for a lot of long hours in those days as we still do. And and Rahat was like, listen, you, it's not a bad idea to take the, this this Westerner and this female on in this tradition. She's so into it. And with that amount of passion for this music, it could really help it open up to some unusual places, you know, in the West and help help bridge this music. And they just love to share it like any other spiritual music. It's it's not coveted, it, it's shared openly, but the learning process is so rigorous. So there's a whole um, succession of levels of what to learn and the devotion of the student really guides that whole thing. So because she was initiated by this master who's considered, you know, the best Kawali Tabla player of this current generation. She's been um, respected because of that, especially. And he's taken her on and taught her for months and months and months after months in, in, in his home. And she's lived with him and been taken in to learn this music deeply. And the whole connection to the shrines is very interesting because women are not permitted to perform kawali at the shrines of, of male saints. And so we'd go to these shrines, like you're probably familiar with, like Nizamuddin Oliya in Delhi, or um, Kaliyar Sharif in Kaliyar in northern India. A lot of these shrines are quite uh, major pilgrimage points for Sufis throughout the Indian subcontinent. And so I'd go there, you know, in the early days, 15 years ago, with the whole group, and and she wasn't, of course, allowed to play with the group in these places. So we just snag one of the solid local Dholak players or whoever was playing. And also in Pakistan, in the same way, we'd recruit one of the the solid uh, tabla players to play with us. And since, you know, the genre crosses over to anyone, someone can just pick it up that knows the music, one of the masters, and, and, and slam it pretty easily. And then finally, it was in Pakpatan also at the Shrine of Baba Fridi, which is really the center of Kowali music traditionally. We were sitting with one of the Beers, one of the Gali Nishin, who are like the tomb holders, the lineage holders from that particular Sufi master, whose shrine it is, who's, you know, what, nine, 900 years ago. And we were just having chai and talking about it, and he was especially open-minded, as many of them are. And I was like, you know, it might be a good idea to to just give permission to Amina to play. It's not a bad idea. It you know it might raise some eyebrows, but consider it. And he was like, okay, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, she can play. <laughs> we were like, really? And apparently, you know, according to the history books and the people there, it's, a woman's never played at that shrine at the Urs, which is you know thousands upon thousands of people listening to the Kowali for that five days of nonstop koali and yeah she just stepped up to the plane and we, and we played and it was a big deal and um that year we, we played a couple of very traditional koalis like mankunto mola which is the oldest koali in diljise zindahe and we we're very respected for it and they make dvds of all the the best koali of that particular year of that was and ours was like the highest selling <laughs> dvd of that year of course, for many reasons, us being just quite a novelty, like you say. But from that point, successively, year after year, uh, different shrines over in, throughout India, throughout Pakistan, have welcomed her and given permission to her as the first woman to play, let alone the first white woman and, and white koal. And yeah, so it's really transcended a lot of barriers, but a lot of these um, masters that hold the shrines and that whole spiritual system of organization around them have really welcomed her in to to do that because of oh I heard she played in Pakistan you know the 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 rumor spreads quick and and she's been given permission you know now when we've played at a lot of these shrines 
dozens and dozens of times. It's been very special path. Yeah, that's a wonderful story. I mean, it's, it reminds me also of just my experience with with Sufis limited, but you know, I, I've had some both both in the West and and in India. Uh, is this a, a kind of openness? I mean, there is this sort of fire, and 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 you say that if you look in the the, the, the Sufi tales or whatever, there's a kind of uh, re- rebellious, even trickster quality. And it would make sense that that with the, with the living spirit of that, especially given the devotion to the music and the and the um, you know the passion as well as the discipline that you guys represent, that there would be a kind of an openness there. But in a larger que- uh, you know uh, picture, what makes that so inspiring to me anyway is just to see people who are able to engage with an aspect of Islam, to letting, setting Sufism by itself aside for a second, and have that kind of openness. So it's not even just that you guys sort of represent a bridge between the West and this amazing tradition, you know, both for people who are in the tradition who are like, wow, these guys really get it. This is great. And then also you go out and you play places like Symbiosis or uh, Beloved, where I saw you play these West Coast festivals, and then you're representing this music uh, to people who don't know anything about it, but you're, and you're doing it in a, in a devoted way, and you're trying to introduce people into it. So you're really acting as a bridge musically, but there's also something, it's a spiritual bridge too, and you, you have people in the West watching your music, hearing your music, and getting, getting caught up in it. And we're singing about Allah, and I think that's incredibly important right now. I mean, I, I, you know, the, you know, with the stress with Islam and all the things we, you know, we could talk for hours about. But I did want to ask you about how you feel, to the extent that you're you're part of a Sufi current, but you're also part of a larger current of of Islam, and that, and you know, whatever you want to talk about your personal religious beliefs or how you've come to appreciate. Islam as a, a larger umbrella of a, a world religion, um, I, I'm curious how it feels to sort of be in this ambassador sort of role, uh, particularly when you're when you're playing for for Western audiences. Yeah, truly, a lot of what we're trying to um, bridge, as far as that goes, for example, um, the Islamic culture and the Sufi culture of the East with the West um, comes through through the film that we're finishing called Music of the Mystics that really goes deeper into that whole connection. And it's more of like a cultural, cross-cultural, informative sharing there, as well as how we can uh, translate the kalams, the the Kowali songs between um, sets and between presentations of each one to try to um, really deepen the understanding of some of the spiritual and cultural metaphors that are in that current of music because they are quite profound and it's not something we've really chosen in the sense of we want to change the whole um, perspective of Islam in the West. It's something that just has happened through our love of the music and our sharing of the music. And just like Amina and I, you know, the group has been deeply connected to Islam and to Sufism. For example, me and Amina, even before we learned Kowali, even met each other, we were both initiated into Sufism by a Sufi master, different Sufi master, and also embraced Islam in that whole process. And it really depends where where and in what setting we play. For example, most of our, sh- our shows, um, maybe like 60%, are for people that are, come from Pakistan and from India and are Muslim. So that's already um, sharing something from within their culture that they really appreciate and know well. Especially, for example, like in a week we're heading to the UK. We tour all over the UK and then North Africa and France and this and that, and that's mostly people from families that have emigrated there one or two or even three generations before, and they're just completely stoked that Kowali is coming to their town, because it's it's rare that Kowali masters have the freedom that we do, or even the organization and management that we do, that we can um, play in so many places in the West, so people appreciate it in that way, 
and the the Pakistani listeners really value that we are um, spreading a good message about Islam, like sharing a very um, universal and beautiful element of that to the West, to Western audiences. And sometimes, you know, they'll even be like 50-50. They'll be 50% people from the Indian subcontinent natively, and then 50% uh, Westerners, whether they're it's in Australia or the UK or America or Canada or whatever. So they really appreciate that and see the the beauty of that, like you say, in this time where there's a lot of negative opinions on Islam because of all the politics going on and a lot of misunderstandings because there's just one side of that picture that's being presented to people. And it's hard. I can you know, empathize that it's hard for people in the West to say, a place like Australia, where most people don't get the opportunity to be in Pakistan or India and be exposed to that Muslim culture that exists there, it's very hard to see something beyond what's being presented again and again through the media. So it's a, yeah, it's a really special and precious gift to be able to share something that's very universal and loving and spiritual that's a different shade, a different perspective on a religion that is uh, often presented from one side, as you know. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, there's a, there's a debate, uh, you know, a, a quite a big debate among a lot of whatever pundits that whether or not Islam is like inherently violent. So there are there are people who you know know something about the religion, argue that there's something essentially wrong about the religion that leads to the kind of extremism that we see. I myself do not believe in this at all. And I think that this is actually a really, uh, a very harmful line of argument, but many people have it. And I sometimes think about it and I read their things and I go, no, that's not right. No, no, you can say the same thing about Christianity. No, no, that's not right. And then I go, what's wrong here? What's missing here? And what I, what I've come to is that these people have no they cannot respond to the, there's no way in which they can fall in love with it. Like there, there's some way in which when you, even if it's a religion that you don't end up practicing, there's a way in which you, you greet a religion by, oh, for me, or religious art or devotional music or a ritual or texts or whatever, is you just kind of open up and say like, what is its particular flavor? What is its special, unique juice that, uh, that from this flower and, for me, I think it's really important to have art and culture associated with religions available for people because it's a way in. It's like they can go, well, yes, clearly, you know, clearly ISIS is a problem, but I'm, and I really love this <laughs> Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan record, and it's like really beautiful in a way that's specifically religious as well as universal in its, you know, energies or its devotions. There's also something very specific. So I think it's a really important work beyond the musical sphere that that you're doing um and in in having that responses so I, I i'd like to also ask how you're was it like uh playing like as i said i saw you at, at beloved at these sort of west coast hippie neo-tribal festivals where there's a lot of electronic dance music where it's which is most certainly a non-traditional environment for koali but it's not a non-spiritual one because you have a lot of people there who are probably more like you were when you were a teenager. You know, they're interested in different tr traditions, they're spiritual seekers, they're mixing this and that, but they're not necessarily people who have found a, a, a traditional path or have e are even devoted to a particular religion, but there's still sort of a, a general sp spiritual seekerness that's going on in these environments. What's it like to bring this kind of tradition into that uh, sort of open-ended uh, environment of, of sort of spiritual eclecticism in the West? Well, ultimately, it's definitely a blessing for us and in many ways. It's the kind of setting and, and demographic, the demographic of people that we relate to on a lot of levels. Um, yeah, it's very diverse. A lot of the events we do, we are forefront in a lot of those transformative kind of festivals because you know there's there's a it's like a folk culture in a lot of ways where people are attracted to like the the groovy beats and the whole scene where there's where there's dancing and socializing and 
um, Kowali is also has that folk element to it where the music is really uplifting and really groovy and very um, animated and, and passionate. So that connects to that kind of culture in a lot of ways. Yet in the whole traditional setting, there's that whole that cultural kind of system of reverence that goes with the music that is is missing because it's um it's not just kind of looking for the next fix or the next dose of bliss and fun although it is very blissful the whole setting at the shrines and the music there's this reverence for something um much greater than just um self-gratification there through the religion and, and through the just the whole spiritual atmosphere of devotion. And it's very universal in the same way as a festival would be at the shrines. There's people from all religions, all genders, all different uh, castes and creeds and from different social demographics. It's really beautiful the way that the Sufis have, have really um, passed that on through their tradition of, um, you know, like one of the main ways that, the Sufis really spread their message in the Indian subcontinent in the history of this music is that uh, they um, transcend a lot of the caste divisions that were current in India at the time. I mean, India still got this caste thing going on and it's really quite hidden in a lot of ways now with the overshadow of Western culture and people taking on different employments and this and that. But it's something that runs really deep in that culture where somebody is, is born into a certain profession or like level of profession, whether it's a, from like a sweeper to a, a, a salesman role and up the up the ranks. And one of the things like, for example, Khwaja Munidin Shishti Ramatulale, who was really the first big Sufi master of the lineage that made a huge impact in the Indian subcontinent over 900 years ago. One of his ways of, of, of breaking through that caste barrier was to feed people. And so like at the Gurdwara, like at the Sikh temple, or at the, at the Mandir, at the Hindu temple, they have, uh, f they feed people. So there's people doing seva, being involved in selfless service of making food, and it's pretty cool at the shrine. They still do it 900 and some years later. They have these huge cauldrons where they make a kitchen type thing, like a uh, vegetarian uh, dish, and it's served to everyone. And in that time, it was the same way. So people from different castes or different religions would sit together and eat this food. And that wasn't, that was prohibited in a lot of, um, of, of the caste structure at that time. So people really valued this and it's been carried on till this day that, uh, that there's no distinction between people as far as, uh, you know, on that spiritual setting of someone being exalted over somebody else. And in, in the festival scene and in, in, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the Western culture, everybody is also has that kind of, um, equality, which is really beautiful. And there's just that level of reverence that we're trying to bring to it through just, I mean, people feel it when they, when they hear the music and they, they hear the way that we sing and where that singing comes from. You know, it's not like a entertainment for the most part. I mean, there is that element of engagement through entertainment, but there's, there's this deep reverence that, transcend somebody's personal expression and uh, I think that has the power of, of bringing that spiritual message just in itself all the way across between cultures and the rest is just being able to explain what the traditional setting is what the meaning of the lyrics are what what the whole cultural and spiritual um, design is behind this music what fuels it and sharing a little bit and a little bit now, 20 years into it, people that come to these festivals like Beloved and have seen us several times, I start to understand it and see it um, and feel it in a, in a deeper way. So that bridge 
um, is strengthened bit by bit. And it does take a lot of time to cross that barrier of East and West and from like a shrine to a electronic music festival. But it seems to be, it seems to be happening naturally in that way. I'm curious about your own uh, growth, spiritual growth, as you, you know, when you entered in the music and we started to establish these these relationships with masters in a, in a more traditional situation in Pakistan where you'd be staying there for a while. Like, how how did you come to sort of open up to uh, the deeper dimensions of, of Islam? Like, like almost uh, aside from the specific you know, the, the, the stories of the koals or the, who you're singing about or the, the images of the lyrics, but you're and you know, at the same time, you're also going into a deeper, uh, a deeper current with, with, with the religion. How did that sort of develop in you? And was it this, was it the same for all the folks in the group? I imagine that people had different ways of kind of getting into the, the current that in many ways you now, you know, you now ride. It's not part of your, you know, existence. Yeah, everybody in the group has a very unique and colorful history behind um, where we've come to as seeing this music as a group. Each of the stories are very worth hearing individually. Yeah, and I'm, I guess I'm kind of the spokesperson for the group in a lot of ways because I understand the music um, in a more comprehensive sense. But, you know, we, we've all spent time deeply engaged with, with yoga and long uh, term meditation and travel and meeting of, of masters and teachers and um, Islam really attracted me personally because in that whole spiritual search that I was engaged in in my teens I connected with a Sufi community and um, they, they were all from different parts of the world, mostly different parts of Africa and South Asia. And what really attracted me especially was the way that we'd sit together and pray together and eat together. There was this communal aspect there. And the power of the devotion was just magnified. The unified field happening spiritually when people in unison sing in devotion or pray in devotion was, was extremely powerful. And they're so open-minded and universal. Most Sufis are and meant to be, at least. <laughs> so that that's what really drew me in as far as Islam goes. But even even the Kowals and the and the Sufi masters know that the actual experience, spiritual experience that we strive for and that comes to us, it really transcends religion and even in the lyrics, there's this whole element of just forgetting all those rules and, and ethics and right and wrong that come from that basis of religion. There's, there's a transcendence of it in that experience, in that divine experience. And people have their own ways, their own paths to um, get to that place. And like I said, in a lot of ways, it's just a spontaneous thing and those who know um, about spirituality have experienced it know that it's 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 a transcendence of all those kind of um, yeah of, of, of religion and and ethics behind it and koali is very clear in the way that it also it also uh, it also says that in in the lyrics and in the teaching so that that we have to let go of all of our all, all of the judgments and all of the personal perspectives and opinions uh, in that spiritual quest and for is, me personally, is there a particular is there ahead. a particular tune you can think I was think I was wondering if there was a particular tune or lyric that that comes to mind that that captures that spirit yeah, there's a lot of a lot of that, and it's very rebellious and raises a lot of eyebrows with the very religious people who stick to their uh, their belief systems quite solidly. Like um, you know, 
there's the classic line like one one level lo, what sorry one lover was in the temple another in the mosque but to me submerged in the color of divine love both are the same and there's a lot of quite heavy lyrics like um even if I have to spill my wine on my prayer rug to see my beloved, I will surely do it. Or crossing the, the stream to get to the beloved, I have to tatter my robe or soil my robe, which is like a, a metaphor for dignity, uh, that kind of thing. We're transcending our mundane existence of being a separate individual with our opinions and rules has to um has to be transcended there has to be willingness to to let that go for that god experience that union that fana and one aspect of that that's reflected in the music is that you you know you've been talking about spontaneity you've been talking about letting go is is just the the fact of improvisation that you're you know, when you're performing, you're, 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 what's, what's coming out immediately is never something you've never done before. Uh, you're moving within, you know, traditions, you're moving within specific rogs, but there's something else that's happening. And I, I'd love to hear you talk about, you know, since I've seen you perform and you, you, you know, you, you have a wonderful voice and it's quite, uh, it's quite stirring. Um, and, what it, what it's like to have that sort of improvisatory relationship to spirit in, in, in a musical sense. Yeah, it's very deeply linked. There's this whole thing if words can't describe God, they can only negate what isn't. And music seems to be like a stepping stone to a different level in that respect. And the words of the Sufis are very profound as far as I see it, as far as being able to express um, deep wisdom about spirituality. You know, basically, like, as far as words can go, I really feel in all my studies of religion and spirituality that the, the, the Sufi poetry really goes out that, to that very limit of of. of pointing to the divine and music takes it a step further as far as I feel it because we're giving life to those ancient verses that could be 500 years ago written or 100 years old or 900 years old when the words of these masters that are timeless are sung with that that passion and that that love and that feeling there's there's, there's this divine uh energy that comes into them and in koali there's like you say there's so much improvisation you really can't have koali without improvisation there's not just the standard <laughs> arrangement you just you just play that and that's it it's uh it's meant to be improvised on in the way that want to uh, boost the power of those lyrics and of the melody the raga, the sentiment of the raga, of the melody that goes with that. And there's many different elements of improvisation, technically speaking, like there's um, bolbhant or uh, gira, which is adding different lines of poetry that, that deepen the, uh, the text or the subject being expressed. There's tan uh, and alankar and amad. These are all different kinds of ways of... Uh, improvisation and like I was saying earlier about the whole spiritual element there's this um, there's this uh, importance of transcending the lyrics just like anything there's there's all the steps that go with it so religion being the base you could say which is like an ethical system of life and how to interact with other people kindly and then there's that spiritual uh, mysticism, like Sufi uh, path, that's uh, that's that that deeper relationship with with God beyond just what to do and not to do. And then the the music in the koali is meant to take it beyond that, where even forget 
the meaning of the words themselves and just be in that ishk, that, that divine state. And improvisation plays a really important role in that because, like you say, it's a spontaneity. It's something that's live and in the current, the present, where God exists. So the music is never really uh, powerful or meaningful in its traditional setting unless the improvisation is is deep and sincere and passionate. So the koals are always trying to outdo each other in a friendly way of expressing more and more drawing out of the lines, like uh, expressing something that that can't be expressed easily. And that comes from opening up to that uh, creative spontaneity of improvisation in that spirit of, of, of devotion. And a lot of the improvisation is just in what we call akhar, which is just ah. So we'll be singing a line and somebody will will feel this this um, inspiration to improvise off of that line, for example. And it's just a feeling, it's just an expression of, of devotion. And the creativity is that, that divine spontaneity of just a pure emotion, just a pure expression of devotion that's a step beyond the words themselves well wonderful i think we'll uh, we'll leave it there we'll go out with that track and and to hear once again thanks for uh, for joining us on expanding mind yeah pleasure thanks for having me great great well good luck on the on your tour and uh uh well i look forward to seeing music of the mystics yeah thank you all right all right uh till next week keep your minds open